Music Waste 2009 is now accepting submissions. This year's festival runs June 10th to 13th. This summer, Music Waste will be celebrating 15 years of independence. As the other local independent music festivals, large and small, have come and gone, Music Waste will once again highlight Vancouver's most interesting and innovative music. A testament to the strength of this musical community and the wealth of talent, Music Waste is Vancouver's independent music festival. Submission deadline, April 15. Please email your submissions to submissions at musicwaste.ca and or for more information contact Cameron Reed by email at cameron at musicwaste.ca or visit the website at www.musicwaste.ca. Hey there. Good Wednesday afternoon to all of you out there. My name is Tracy Fuller and this is the Arts Report for Wednesday, April 15th, 2009. It is a glorious day here in Vancouver. I hope all of you got out into the sunshine, but if you didn't get a chance today, never fear because if you can believe the weather forecast, it's going to be sunny again tomorrow and on Saturday. So I guess spring is finally here. The cherry blossoms are out, the magnolias are in bloom, and it's a beautiful time to be in Vancouver. It's also a beautiful time to be artsy in Vancouver, which is what the show is all about. On the show today, I've got interviews with Vancouver artist Christina Podesva, ballet BC dancer Donald Sales, and the co-creator of Rock Soup Jewelry Design and Food of Fufu, an art, new arts fair and concert. I've also got two sets of tickets to the ballet to give away, so stay tuned later on for that. But first, we're heading to Science World. No, I'm not kidding around. Now, I know a lot of you, when you think of Science World, most people picture the giant white sphere sitting on the edge of False Creek. They think of the Omnimax Theater, of insects, of taste bud tests and asteroids. But all that stuff is just for kids, right? Well, wrong, actually. At least this Friday, that'll be wrong from 6.30 p.m. until 10 p.m. because Science World is hosting its Adults Night. There, you can enjoy the wonders of Lego through the new exhibit Wheels, Wings, and Waves, a Lego world of transportation. And you can enjoy the fun-filled wonder that is Science World in a licensed capacity with beer or wine in hand and without all the kids. Earlier today, I spoke with Joanne Kogan. She's a manager of community engagement at Science World. And here's our conversation. For adult night at Science World. Um, it, was an actu- it was actually an idea that uh, somebody came up with a few years ago, and we tried a couple, um, and they were very successful, and we had nothing but really good feedback from the adults uh, that came to the event, how much fun it was, and how good it, it felt to be in Science World without kids around and be able to play with, with all the stuff here. Um, it's sort of, um, I mean, when I think of Science World, I think of space, and I think of insects, and I think of the taste bud tests and but mostly kids it sort of it doesn't occur to me that perhaps adults would be interested in playing in the same way or learning yeah it's 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 it's, it's definitely interesting i mean all of us adults that work here um it makes sense to us to want to be in a space where you can play and be a kid again without having the kids around watching you going 
what are you doing? <laughs> um, and and you, you watch the adults, and once they kind of get used to being in the space and start to feel comfortable, they really get into the playing side of being here. It's mm -hmm. it's great to see. And when was the first time that this happened? It was a couple of years ago? Uh, the very first one we did, yeah, would have been um, actually probably two or three years ago now. Mm. Like I said, we just did, we just, we did a trial run. We tried it, and it was great. And then a, 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 quite a few months later, we tried another one. Um, it went really well. And then we tried one with a theme to it. I think we did like a murder mystery mm -hmm. or, or um, maybe it was wine and roses. I can't remember one of those two. Mm -hmm. And it was really successful. So uh, we decided we should make them a, a, a fairly regular thing. And who comes to these events? Like, is it just parents or is it just younger people? and it is a licensed event. Yes, it is. It's a licensed event, so uh, over 19 only. Mm -hmm. um, we, we get a, actually a really good mixture. It, it seems to be largely focused on the younger crowd when we do the straight science world after dark. It's just um, the building open to adults to come and play. Mm -hmm. We find that's a younger crowd. When we do themed events, we find we get a little bit of the older crowd, the, the, the parents and sometimes even the grandparents um, coming down, yeah. Great. So this time is just a, a science world after dark, but you do have a big Lego wing, wheel, wing and waves, yes. um, a Lego world of transportation exhibit on. Can you tell us a little bit about that so people who are interested in checking it out will know what to expect? Yeah. Um, well, as it as it, the title uh, claims, it's a giant Lego exhibit of um, things that move and and things that fly, and and uh, you can make your own things that uh, move and fly. And um, probably one of the highlights, I think, for adults uh, would be the race car that's made out of Duplo Ooh. that you can actually sit in, cool. and behind you is a green screen, and you can see yourself up on a screen racing around a track in your, your Duplo car. Um, that, 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 I think adults will, will find that um, very entertaining. Absolutely. Did you play with uh, Lego when you were younger? Um, you know what? I don't actually remember playing with Lego when hmm. I was younger, but I, I, I mean, I have children now, and I certainly play with it now, and yeah, sometimes wish my son wasn't around so I could build my own thing rather than building what he was building. Right. I remember playing with Lego myself many times, but I often do wonder whether or not nowadays with, you know, Wii and Nintendos and all these sort of high-tech games, whether or not Lego still has the same appeal to kids and or the same kind of resonance as it did with people of my generation and perhaps people older than me. Yeah, well, watching the number of children we had come into the Lego gallery the first few weekends it was open was a real eye-opener for us to how popular Lego still is mm. um, and I think um, for the adults now that are becoming parents they remember Lego they have great memories of Lego so they're buying it for their children and kind of reliving their childhood a little bit um, and coming to the Lego exhibit here is a perfect opportunity to play with Lego, <laughs> you know, and not be watched by the kids, or, mm -hmm. and ha you just do your own thing and have a good time. I mean, a lot of what you, what the adults will see um, when they come to the Lego exhibit is is very visual. Like we have this West Coast. 
city completely made out of Lego. We have a SkyTrain station made out of Lego, and um, and, and then they can bring the inner kid in them out by building, you know, a Lego car and and racing the car down a, a, a ramp with their friends. And mm-hmm. it's a little bit for everything. Or, sorry, a little bit of everything for everybody. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. So aside from the Lego, is there any other highlight that you would highly recommend people check out if they come down on Friday night? Definitely. Um, we have just renovated uh, our search gallery, which is our natural uh, our natural gallery where we have all of our bugs and snakes and, and uh, creepy crawlies. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks absolutely beautiful. Um, it really it really is a nice space and a nice area and a, a good area to check out check out uh, all the nature sciences. And will people be able to actually get in touch with some of those creepy crawlies? Uh, yes, if the right person is in the gallery that's willing to take out the creepy crawly that they wish to uh, get in touch with, certainly. Um, but the highlight of the new search gallery would probably be the life-size T-Rex skeleton that we have in there. Wow. Um, that has definitely been a, a highlight for people coming to see the, the new search gallery. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, Joanne, thank you so much for talking about all this with me today. You're very welcome. And I will definitely be checking out the Adults Night at Science World, and I hope I many hope of so. our listeners do too. Yeah, will I hope you be so there? too. They, yes, I will be there. They should come on down, check it out. It'll be lots and lots of fun. Great. Well, we will see you there, and have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Adult Night at Science World is this Friday, that's April 17th, from 6.30 p.m. until 10 p.m. Tickets are $18.75, and they will be available at the door, as will tickets for the drinks and the other uh, liquid incentives that will be available to all the adults attending that night. Now, moving on towards more artistic um, interviews. The the Langara College Center for Art in Public Spaces was formed in 2008 as an innovative approach to the public uh, requirement of the City of Vancouver for art. The center has a mission to engage communities in the research, production, and presentation of art in the public realm, and the center encourages dialogue and fosters opportunities to collaborate on, experience, and learn about art in public spaces. Their 2008 and 2009 program included a public speaker series and curriculum development initiatives. The the new center was also able to sponsor an artist in residence. Christina Lee Podesva is a Vancouver-based artist and educator. She is also an editor and writer for the Philip Review. I spoke to her earlier today about her project at the Langara Center for Art in Public Spaces, and here's our conversation. Christina, you're just about to complete your artist-in-residence term at Langara's Center for Art in Public Spaces, and I understand you were their first artist-in-residence. What does that position exactly entail? Well, it is a year-long residency program affiliated with the center, which is developed at Langara College. And the initiative, I suppose, developed out of a capital campaign. Um, There's a 1% for art requirement for all capital campaigns um, that are initiated within the GVRD, from what I understand. And so Langara decided to take the money that they received um, from this campaign 
to develop an artist residency. Now, the reason why they had the capital campaign was because they raised funds to build a new library and student union building. Mm-hmm. And so 1% of that money was then put aside for an artist in residency at the center. And this is going to be at minimum a three-year program with the possibility of it being extended beyond that term. So I was awarded the first residency, and the second residency has just been awarded to Vancouver artist Holly Ward. Hmm. And so that has been announced as of this week, I believe, and then it will continue on, and to that will be awarded, I don't know, right. yet. So how did they? How did you first learn about it, and how did the selection process go for you being the first artist in residence? Well, the selection process is... Um, something which happens behind closed doors, so I don't know exactly how that works exactly. Um, But there is a curator who conducts research on public art practices that are not um, necessarily specific to creating, let's say, static sculpture in courtyards. So this is a kind of new idea or new approach to public art in which there's more active engagement with the students, the faculty, and the local community. And so I guess in that respect, the residency is really geared toward artists who work in much more kind of discursive and collaborative practice. Um, So the work is not about making, you know, a sculpture or painting necessarily. It's more about engaging with the students, faculty, and the neighborhood. Great. So the project that you've been working on or that you've presented on campus at Langara um, is called Vehicle. Can you explain first what, for those people who may have passed by Vehicle a number of times, what it looks like? Sure. So there's actually many components to the actual project, but the physical components to the project comprise two shipping containers which sit on wooden piers on the front steps of the entrance to Langara College. So that's on West 49th near Ontario Street. Right. And And anyone who would have passed by it would have seen the two containers. These are the kind of containers that we see out in English Bay. Yes, but they're slightly smaller. They're the 20-foot long versus the 40-foot long version. And so physically what you would see when the project is not actually open to the public are two shipping containers on piers over the steps. But when it's open, the doors are opened, and inside you'll see sliding glass doors on every end hmm. of the container so that you can see through the actual um, structures themselves. And then attached to it are a number of other sorts of projects and installations, and I don't know what which you'd like me to talk about first, but they but they are related to the actual structure. Right. Well, my next question was going to be, what ideas are you questioning by within these spaces, or what what ideas are you confronting when people actually go inside of the space? Um, what do they see there? And what... okay. Um, well, maybe I should give you a little background about how I came to develop the project in the okay. first place. So, knowing that the money had come from the capital campaign for the library and the student union building, I thought I really wanted to speak back to that particular source of funding and also to talk about the campus itself. And after I'd done a little research and talked to some alumni, what I realized was that uh, Langara houses 
quite a number of different programs and departments and students, but one thing they share in common is the fact that they're in a particularly um, transitory situation since it is a transfer school. Mm -hmm. The other issue that I noticed was that 40% of the student body uh, are born outside of Canada. Mm -hmm. And so as I was thinking about this context, I realized that globalization is an experience that um, I think the students there feel quite acutely, whether that's through being born in another country and then moving here, but it's also this notion of hypermobility through the school, throughout the city, etc. So what I decided to do was to talk back to the experience of globalization through a series of reading rooms and what I'd call rewriting events. Mm -hmm. And so the two shipping containers each house one category of situations. So one shipping container, the one that was closest to the street, housed the rewriting events, so events where we would talk about the experience of globalization through a variety of programs. And then in the other container, there was a series of three reading rooms, which I developed in collaboration with three different artists. Um, and essentially for me, what I was trying to do was to create a programmatic and architectural or spatial framework for localizing our understanding and experience of globalization. So that sounds like <laughs> quite a lot to take in, but at its very basic um, sense is, is this notion that we all experience globalization and we can study and talk about it mm -hmm. through a series of more intimate exchanges. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, go ahead. It just sounds to me, I think that globalization is something that confronts us every day in our in our everyday lives, whether it's the fruit that we buy or in the morning or the products that we're using or the, the means of, or who our friends are, et cetera. But we don't talk about it necessarily or we don't recognize the role that it plays in our lives. Yeah, I think that's actually true. And so choosing shipping containers, which is the de facto symbol of globalization and mm. then mooring them, you know, anchoring them to the site was a way to to make a visual um, sort of a visual signification or representation of, of that particular kind of phenomenon, which is so huge, right? Mm -hmm. So if we could embody it through shipping containers, that was the first idea. But then the second idea was to make the shipping containers not to be used as they're normally designed to be used to transport things, but in a sense to create this frame mm -hmm. for thinking through certain global phenomena. So that was the idea. And so when you can look through the containers, the idea is that that's the spatial or architectural frame that slows down global flows mm -hmm. for the events and for the reading rooms just a little bit so that we can stop and consider them and have a kind of space and time to think about these things a little bit more um, closely, but also more speculatively, mm -hmm. which is to say that I didn't want to create a project in which we thought about globalization in the same old ways, but to kind of um, poke at it a little bit mm -hmm. where we were having fun or we were being, um, you know, comic or we were being dramatic and to sort of engage um, with globalization in a totally different way. And, I mean, I can talk to you about specifically how we did that, but that, that's sort of the general idea. Well, yeah, I was going to say, you, you're talking about reading rooms, with which you developed in partnership with other, other artists. Is this a space where people actually walked in and picked out a book and started reading, or what? What? how did you get the people who wandered into the space or were curious about the space involved in the kind of questioning that you were interested in developing? Yeah, well... 
I should say that the reading rooms weren't uh, exactly like the library because it mm -hmm. wasn't a literal, I suppose, interpretation of a reading room in that sense. They were um, much more specific. And so the first one was called Thought for Food, and I worked on that one with Jeffrey Swartz, who is someone who's actually from Vancouver but now lives in Barcelona in Spain. Mm. And his whole idea was to look at globalization through consumption, which, of course, food would be a big area, right. like you mentioned earlier, where um, we consume things every day that come from all over the world and we don't really think about it. So mm -hmm. his idea was to display a number of books that refer to gastronomy. So it's a kind of gastronomy reading room. But the way we set it up was that we set it up as a tapas bar with books under glass. Oh. <laughs> and then we had a video menu um, where you could go and watch videos related to food and cooking. Mm -hmm. But the idea was that you could never actually look at the books closely. You could only sort of look at them from afar. Mm. And one of the neat things that Jeffrey did was he also took notes on these books, so you could only really know the books through his reading of them. Yeah. And so you could go through this recipe file, which were the notes that Jeffrey composed on mm. these books, and on the back, what we put on there were um, the results of searches of BC libraries about whether or not they had these books in their mm. collections, and many of them were actually not there. Mm. And so what Jeffrey was really trying to get at there was this notion of, you know, food is something that we consume every day. It's part of this global system, and yet we don't really know much about it. And locally, we really don't know much about it mm -hmm. if we go on the knowledge we're given from those searches. And then the second one was called Copy Room, mm -hmm. and that one I collaborated on with Jeff Kansari. And this one's a pretty simple reading room. We just cre created a space where you could come and use a copier, a photocopier, and paper. And the idea was you could use the service free, but you had to leave a copy of what you copy behind. And hmm. so through the accumulation of those transactions, we would have documentation of a kind of local knowledge economy. Hmm of the type of people and things that were passing through that space before and after each different viewer was there. Exactly. Hmm. And then the third one is called Book Drop, and that just closed yesterday. And I worked with Vanessa Kwan on that particular room, and it just featured an inbox and an outbox. And if you walked in, you could drop a book off, mm -hmm. fill out a form, and then she would go and take the form and then make a work of art out of the book and the form that you hmm. filled in. So, so what here, would an yeah. example of a form be? So for instance, the form would ask you questions like, you know, your name, okay. um, what your favorite author was, um, you know, kind of what were your interests in books, that sort of thing. Okay. And so then those who are lucky enough um, to receive the service would then get back the new artwork based hmm. on the form and the book that they provided. So that was a kind of private affair, but what was interesting about that particular room was um, it was really about artwork as a service or, or and the artist as a laborer. Mm. And I think with Copy Room, which I didn't get to, I think what was really quite interesting to me about that is it deals with <clears throat> the notion of authorship and of property. Like, Definitely who owns this work, what is this work, and how does it circulate. So all of these loosely deal with um, notions of global capitalism, but they do it in a very specific way. Right. 
and also in a way that that is becoming more coming more and more to the forefront of people's thoughts and and ideas these days i mean the 100 mile diet was born out of two people in from bc the interior and and i think people's um ideas regarding internet authorship and who owns ideas on the internet and how we communicate and how what we consider service versus um let's say music um when people are either downloading or or ripping music off the internet how we think of the artist in that capacity as content or commodity versus art exactly and that's what i was that's actually what i'm interested in in general as an artist i'm not interested in making work which is let's say kind of autonomous i mean i don't think many people believe in that anymore anyway but i'm really more interested in creating systems that you can't plunk down in a gallery without providing some context and that this kind of system engages an audience not only through their imagination but through um their intellect and their current context you know so you mentioned a lot of things which i'm thinking about which is the hundred mile diet or how do we consume food within you know global environmental crisis and how do we talk about property and the role of the artist in the age of information and the internet so all of these things are quite contemporary issues versus looking at things that are perhaps um already digested in culture you know and i think that's generally what i was trying to do with the project mm -hmm. now along with the uh two shipping containers that are located on west 49th there you also have a companion website at www.thisisavehicle.com which shows examples of vehicles you've created and encourages people who visit the site to participate and repurpose objects of their own what kind of response for both of the um, both the vehicles that are present at Langara and your online project? What kind of participation have you been getting? Because your, this all of this work does demand that the spectator, quote unquote, is involved. Yeah. Well, I think that in terms of the attendance of the events at vehicle and the reading room openings that has been drawing from a number of different audiences. So one would include the students at Lankerud. In particular, I've worked closely with the fine arts students mm -hmm. as well as the faculty of fine arts. Um, but there have been other faculty involved as well. So for instance, the computer science department at Langara uh, participated in a discussion and lecture on the notion of creative commons. Mm. So that was one um, evening in terms of events that we had at Vehicle. Um, an alumnus held a cooking lesson called Cooking the Books in mm. relation to the Thought for Food mm. reading room. Right. And so what he did for that particular project is he he and I set up the rewriting room as a cooking class. Right. And what we did was we brought financial documents, both our personal financial documents and financial documents such as um, the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. And we worked with the attendees to create a kind of um, a giant stew. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you know, we went through all this preparing of the documents, so cutting them according to certain kinds of French techniques, and then at the end putting them into the stew. Hmm. Um, and a so, real live culture melting pot. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, even though it literally does nothing in terms of um, helping us, you know, gain some kind of power of the current economic meltdown. I think what it did do was psychologically, 
it was a sort of cathartic experience. Mm -hmm. And we definitely all felt like we had done something, even though it was purely symbolic. Um, But in terms of, you know, the audience, I would say that it's it's drawn from Langara, but also from the local arts community as well. And depending on, um, you know, the weather or the particular reading room that was staged, um, you would have different types of people who showed up. And in terms of the website, I haven't yet quite gone very public with that. So for the people who have participated, some have participated because they found out about it through a class, whether it was at Langara or also um, some SFU students in the fine arts department there have also um, been involved. And some people have randomly stumbled across it. So, um, you know, with the web, I think you have perhaps more of a or a broader audience to yes. choose from. Well, because geography holds no bounds. That's right. <laughs> so I guess to wrap up, next Tuesday, April 21st, is the end of, of Vehicle's presentation, and you're going to be holding a retrospective at the center. Um, so I'm just wondering what that event will entail. Sure. So as the very final day of the project, um, Tuesday, April 21st, In the afternoon from 1 to 6, anyone could come in and look at documentation from all of the events and the reading rooms. So in a sense, the two containers become a museum of the whole residency itself, and it will serve to exhibit documentation, which in large part came from the photo students at Langara College, in fact. Hmm. Um, So you can do that from 1 to 6, and then from 6 to 8 p.m., there'll be a kind of celebration or closing party. And at that point, we'll be serving cake and and refreshments such as beer and wine. So Mm -hmm. everyone's invited to come to that as well. Fantastic. And what will happen to the containers after the 21st? Well, they're going back to Container West, the supplier, who generously gave us a discount on the rental rate for the containers themselves. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know where they will go afterward, but hopefully the documentation um, will be added to an archive for the Langara residency in general. Mm-hmm. And I guess my last question is, um, uh, it's hard to talk about success when you are speaking about an artwork or a project like this, where it's a, a journey not only of the artist, but it's also a journey of those people who become involved and see and are participating in the show. Do you feel, coming to the end of this residency, what, what's your perspective on what on vehicle and what it's achieved and where you might be taking your, your project next? Wow, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in general my projects tend to be experiments anyway. Mm-hmm. They become departure points. And in terms of thinking about them as being successful, or not, it's difficult to say because what I'm most interested in is sparking or catalyzing something that didn't exist previously. Right. Now, where that goes from there, since my projects are heavily collaborative and participatory, it really depends upon the audience and those who are involved in the project to take it forward. So I, I, th- I sort of think of it as um, a way to start discussions and a way to start looking at things in a different light and a way to... Um, open up what we know. Um, so my, from my perspective, I think that, yes, it definitely started those discussions and created a bit of a, a catalyst for other 
kinds of exchanges and interventions. But where it goes, I, I really have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of my work, myself, I think that definitely I'm interested in doing something perhaps not as um, spatially demanding because okay. it definitely <laughs> had a lot of, there was a lot of architectural and construction work involved mm-hmm. with this particular project. And so, in fact, it, it has affected my practice in the sense that I want to go perhaps more into the virtual realm for a little while right. um, and be a little less um, <laughs> dependent on um, sort of the investment of time and, and money that it takes when, when you work on a sort of larger architectural project. Right. I was going to jump in with some uh, some words there, but then I was like, no, 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 don't, don't presuppose. And, <laughs> um, but uh, it sounds, I mean, I've passed by it a couple of times and have never actually ventured in. So I will be there next Tuesday, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it, and I really hope that all of our listeners head out there. Christina, thank you so much for talking with me this afternoon. Well, thank you. No problem. Christina Lee Podesva is the artist behind Vehicle, which remains open to the public Monday through Thursdays from 4 to 8 p.m. at Langara College. Next Tuesday, April 21st, Christina will be hosting the Vehicle Retrospective from 1 to 6 p.m., followed by the the Vehicle Retrospective Closing Party, which is from 6 to 8 p.m. Vehicle is located at the main entrance of Langara College, and that's at 100 West 4th, 49th Avenue between Main Street and Canby. What is that? I know what that is. That's music. For 15 bucks, the Friends of CITR card scores you in-store discounts at Beat Street, Red Cat, Vinyl, Scratch, and Audio Pile. Support Vancouver's finest indie radio station and pick up your card today. What are you I want to rock. Hey there, you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. My name's Tracy Fuller, and this is the Arts Report. We're heading into the latter half of the show now. And to start off, Ballet BC has been in the headlines a lot these past few months. From their declaration of bankruptcy in December to their holiday fundraising campaign, the company has survived through their 2008 and 2009 season, although it hasn't been easy. This Thursday, Ballet BC is presenting their final scheduled work for the season. That's John Ellen's A Streetcar Named Desire, based on the Tennessee Williams play. Now, Donald Sales was one of Ballet BC's shining stars for years. He joined the company in 2003 after dancing in New York City for the Dance Theatre of Harlem and later dancing on cruise ships. His performances as Demetrius in Ellen's The Fairy Queen, in Marc Godin's conversation piece, and as Stanley in the original production of Streetcar are some of Ballet BC's most unforgettable performances. For this remount of Streetcar Named Desire, which is opening, as I said, this Thursday, Donald Sales has decided to return to Ballet BC for one last performance. I spoke with him over the phone last night, and here's our conversation. So, Donald Sales, thank you so much for joining me over the phone today. Oh, no problem. It's my pleasure. Now, last November, you said goodbye to Ballet BC, and there were reports that you were ending your dancing career entirely. So, what prompted you to return for this production of A Streetcar Named Desire? Um, Well, first of all, uh, 
while I was off, I, um, you know, had heard about, you know, the, uh, the mess that Valley BC went through. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just thought it would be a, uh, a good move for me to let John know that I'll be willing to help him if he needs help with streetcar. And, you know, I knew he would have a hard time teaching. Um, I think there's like two or two or three new roles that he would have to teach plus mine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to take a little stress off his hands, I decided, you know, if you need help with that, I'll be more than willing to come back to do that show for you. And, you know, of course he agreed with that. And, you know, that's why I came back. Also, I, I wanted to clarify that I'm, I wasn't, when I left in November, I wasn't ending my dance career, mm-hmm. but I was ending my um nine to five dance career like i'll still be doing you know independent work and i'll be merging Mm -hmm. more into my choreography and stuff but i think dance will always be with me but i just don't know if i can do you know nine to five for you know eight months anymore (laughs) right and also i i heard that you were thinking about doing more choreography yourself and getting perhaps on the other side of the stage a little more often yeah, that's that's the plan. That's what I'm working on right now. I'm trying to plan um, little, you know, segues to get my work out as well. You know, whether it's little small shows around Vancouver or branching off into workshops that they have in the States or, you know, just anything I can find, really. Right. Going back to Streetcar, the role of Stanley is one that you're rather familiar with. But for listeners out there who might not know the history of this ballet, can you tell us a little bit about where this idea came from and how it was developed into the ballet that we're going to see next week? Yeah, well, Streetcar, uh, A Streetcar Named Desire is originally a play. Mm -hmm. I forgot the name of the writer. Yeah, say that again, John. Tennessee Williams. Tennessee Williams, of course. Yeah. And uh, it's also a movie which starred Marlon Brando mm-hmm. and a uh, wonderful actress. Uh, the actress was Vivian Lee Jones. Right. Um, um, but I think more of John's uh, ballet was based more off of the play rather than the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's basically about um, a husband and wife. I play the husband and Mariana uh, Bauer plays the wife and a sister Mariana's sister, mm-hmm. and it's the re- it, the relationship is around us three basically. Um, Mariana's sister comes into me and my wife's life, and uh, she's basically trying to take Mariana back to her past. And Mariana wants to move forward, and I'm trying to keep uh, my wife from going back mm-hmm. to the past, like the way things used to be. And I'm trying to keep her going towards more of what things will be in the future. And so it's just, you know, me and Mariana's sister, uh, Blanche is the character's name, and um, uh, Stella is my wife's name. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just me and Stella, we get into this this huge battle throughout the whole ballet of me, of us. We're basically fighting over uh, Stella. And um, I want to I keep Blanche away from Stella, keep her from, you know, lying about Blanche's past. There's a lot that Blanche doesn't tell her mm-hmm. about. Um, her past, and I end up bringing all that up front and showing, showing Stella who her sister really is, and you know, and trying to exploit the, the facade that she's bringing throughout the ballet. And so, it's this huge dispute between Blanche and I, and then it erupts at the end of it. 
Hmm. And when, I mean, in the movie, the most famous scene is that scene of Marlon Brando standing outside the window and screaming, Stella! Is there the same sort of emotional climax in the ballet? There is, uh, right, uh, right. Uh, I think you'll know where it is. I, I, I can't really explain it, but there is a climax that goes that that is meant to be the scream, and then after the scream, you see Stella and I making up. And, right. You know, nice. That's <laughs> yeah, really good. Um, you worked extensively with John Allen while he was developing this ballet. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about what it was like working with him back then, and what it's what it's been like to work with him as the di- artistic director of the ballet? Um, well, the process when we first started it, I think in 2006, it was very experimental. Um, we didn't have any idea of where we would go with the characters, and he brought in scripts for us to read and get a get a um, get comfortable with them. And um, when it came to the choreography, he had a distinct vocabulary for Stanley. He had a distinct vocabulary for Blanche and a distinct vocabulary, dance vocabulary for uh, Stella as well. So as we were going throughout the ballet, he made sure to stay within those bounds. Like Mm -hmm. uh, I was more of the, um, I guess you can say, animalistic and very uh, aggressive uh, dancer out of of the bunch. And Stella seemed to be more of the vulnerable, um, um, pretend, uh, playful Mm -hmm. type uh, character. And... And Stella, she was basically the balance between us two. Mm. Um, uh, she had, you know, she seemed more, more uh, grounded, I, maybe. Yeah, more grounded, more earthy, and mm. uh, that's what that's what keeps the balance between um, Blanche and I. Is mm-hmm. Stella? She's like our mediator. Right. Why did did John give you any sense of why he wanted to convert this play and then film into a ballet? What what inspired him about this story specifically? Um, I think it's the reason is you know basically this it's a good story and he wanted to portray the uh, uh, he talks about it all the time how um, how all these different uh, nationalities come into play like. Uh, you know, Kowalski was from, I forget where he was originally, but mm-hmm. basically forming the new America, going right. from the old America to the new America. And he just wanted to, uh, I, I guess, express that. Having um, me as Stanley, he thought it was a perfect opportunity to bring uh, uh, the difference between the different nationalities, you know what I mean? Right. Like uh, the different struggles, the different, the different everything. It was the perfect time to bring that in. Right. So, on a more general basis, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about Ballet BC's financial struggles, etc. And I think that one thing that, for people who aren't really familiar with the ballet and why Ballet BC is so different from other ballets in Canada, I mean, what would you tell someone who, who wants to know what's unique and different about Ballet BC from other companies? Well, Ballet British Columbia, we tend to experiment more. We don't uh, stay within the classical realm, which is, I think, is what most audiences are used to. They're Mm -hmm. used to seeing the Swan Lakes, the Sleeping Beauties, and, you know. And I think with Ballet British Columbia, we are trying to um, broaden the... um, 
broaden the uh, audience, I guess, and broaden the, the minds of our audiences. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we want to show you guys that, you know, there there is nice ballet and it's not all has to do with point shoes or tutus or anything there's right. there's there's a lot to be said through contemporary movement there's a lot more expression there's uh the story sometimes might be harder to um uh interpret follow? yeah, yeah hard, hard to follow but but that's where but that's where your own interpretation comes on you can tell your own story and you know when we hear when we hear what our audience got from uh, a abstract contemporary ballet, then it, it makes more sense to us. Like mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes when we're when we're experimenting ourselves, we don't actually know the story, but we're just kind of letting the movement tell a story. Right. And then to hear what the audience um, gets uh, from that. Yeah, to hear their interpretations, it really opened our eyes to you know, you know what how, the ballet is communicating maybe yeah how how they're receiving it you mm. know what i mean and so i think it's good for audiences to stay open with ballet british columbia because we're we're uh it's uh, as they all know it's changing here mm -hmm. at ballet british columbia uh, i'm not sure if it's going to you know continue to be as contemporary as it was but there's definitely a transition here mm. and you know um, I, I think it's a good thing. Definitely. And when you think back on your career as a dancer, what role did Ballet BC play in molding you into the artist that you are now? Well, uh, one of the main roles, one of the first ones was uh, I was a sacrifice in Rite of Spring. Mm -hmm. um, he really gave me a lot of freedom in that, and I was able to develop uh, a Donald style through that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Theatric-wise, I would say Rodeo, um when I was a cowboy that that mm -hmm. that brought a lot brought a lot out uh theatrically and with with this role as Stanley it's bringing the two together so mm -hmm. I'm bringing the theatrics with the Donald style of dance so I think this is a perfect way to um sum up what I've learned here at Valley British Columbia hmm. dance wise Hmm. So people should definitely get out to the Queenie and see it. Yeah. I guess my last question um, would be, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound rude or anything like that, but I mean, I know that there are people out there, people who don't go to the ballet, but I mean, dance in general has had a big resurgence on TV with So You Think You Can Dance and all that sort of thing. Hmm. I mean, does... Does every city need a ballet company? And what does a ballet company do for a city like Vancouver? Well, I wouldn't say every city needs a ballet company, but definitely a city like Vancouver, you know, with different, uh, a lot of multicultural uh, things going on around the city, I think um, dance is good mm -hmm. for cities such as Vancouver. Um, I would say arts in general is good to have uh, in cities because um, for me, um, when I grew up in Oklahoma, there is arts there, but people didn't appreciate it more. Mm -hmm. So now in return, I feel like I can't really uh, live in my hometown, and I feel like my hometown has a cloud over them. Mm -hmm. and. Um, 
when I go home, I I don't feel like I'm at home because I can't perform. You know, people don't really appreciate, you know, the work I'm putting into being on stage, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And it's also good for the people that have a need to express, right? So it's good to have, you know, ballet or whatever form of arts there is. So these, so a lot of kids can get off the streets and into dance studios and um, do something with their lives. You know what I mean? So it, it all comes into play, you know, it, 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 it all works out for the good, you know? I completely agree. Well, Donald, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. And best of luck with the production at this the end of this week. Great. I hope to see you there. That was my conversation with Donald Sales, the ballet BC dancer. A streetcar named Desire runs at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre from April 16th to 18th. That's Thursday through Saturday. And I've got two pairs of tickets to give away, one set for Friday night and one set for Saturday night. So if you are interested in going to see the ballet for free, give me a call now at 604-822-2487. That's 604 604- UBC CITR and I'll hook you up with some tickets. Now last but not least, if you're passing by the Cambrian Hall this Saturday, April 18th, you may hear a ruckus coming from inside. Now have no fear, enter therein and you will find an event like no other that brings together Vancouver's arts and music community and celebrates the opportunities that are not an economic recession can bring. Yes, Stephanie Brisbois is one of the two local women behind Photo Fufu. This is a new arts event. She joined me over the phone earlier today to talk about the new event, and hopefully it will happen frequently. Here's our conversation. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for joining me on CITR's Arts Report today. Well, thank you for having me. No problem. Um, can you start off by telling the story of how Photo Fufu came about? For sure. Well, Fuda Fufu is actually a rock soup presentation, and rock soup is a culmination of myself, Stephanie Brisbois, and my partner, Lisa Hawthorne. And when both of us were, I hate to say victims, but we'll go with victims of the recession in November mm-hmm. and both got laid off our jobs, we were sitting around looking for work, and we said, you know what, we're both smart Vancouverites. She's an artist, I'm a business person, and we just put our heads together and thought, you know what, I bet we can make some really cool leather jewelry. So we actually went out to a thrift store, bought a bunch of old leather jackets and skirts and started making cuffs. The, uh, this, uh, this was going to be my second question, was what were you doing before and why leather jewelry? Why, why did you go in this direction? I think both of us had just had, you know, we'd go in thrift stores and we'd see these really nice leather on this hideous old jackets and skirts and just thought, you know what, we can make something from that that would just be fantastic and definitely been inspired by other artists around town and around Canada and just seeing really neat pieces from refurbished materials from everywhere and just kind of inspired from that as well. Okay. Um, and I have to ask, Fuda Fufu, how did the name come about? And Rock Soup, the names for your company. Well, the name for Rock Soup actually came from, um, Lisa was telling me about um, it was a story that we were supposed to have all known growing up. It was about um, a village where they went around and made a soup from rocks. And it was kind of this this tale that kids are supposed to grow up with where you make something from nothing. Mm. And she was actually telling me the story about this the day that we went out to go pick up this leather. So 
then we sat down, we're making the cuffs, and just kind of, it just kind of came out of nowhere. And Fuda Fufu, we can't really take credit for that one. <laughs> it's kind of, we kind of stole it with a twist off of those Kiwi boys that are coming to town pretty soon. Oh. Uh, definitely is a play off of Flight <laughs> of the Concord song, uh, Fuda Fafa. Right. And that was definitely an album that we listened to a lot when it was 12 and 14 hour days staring at leather. It made mm -hmm. us laugh and brought some ridiculousness into the silliness. Well, fantastic. I'm, I, I want you to speak more on that. When you guys were preparing your, your uh, jewelry and or your leather cuffs, etc., for sale, you ran into a lot of stumbling blocks along the way. And that's sort of how Fuda Fufu came about, as you being curators as well as presenters? Absolutely. Um, when we had started making all these cuffs, um, we were rolling with that and then obviously thinking the big question, great, what are we going to do with these when we have them? And it was coming up to the Christmas season, mm -hmm. and we would always saw lots of posters around town for art shows and craft fairs, and so I started contacting them, and steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. um, these are full about a year in advance, is oh. what I was told over and over and over again, and with a lot of frustration, but with a lot of excitement still about what we were doing. Um, we managed to get into one um, that there was a cancellation for. Mm -hmm. And so we got into one at the Cambrian Hall before Christmas, and we went there, and it wasn't exactly our target market, but we did get a lot of great feedback about our work from the right people, and actually were invited to put our uh, rock soup cuffs into a store up on Main Street. So that gave us a lot of encouragement, and it also had us ask the question, well, if we can't get into these events, there must be lots of other people with the same problem. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that and thinking about the success that we ended up ha having and also just um, Lisa's really in the artist community in Vancouver. She works at El Cartel, so she has the opportunity to meet a lot of people that are making really cool things. And came January, we just started looking at places and it was just something that we were going to do. So who are the who are the other artists who weren't getting through in other events like yourselves who are going to be presenting or will have their stuff available at Fuda Fufu? Um, well we have about 20 different artists and some of them are actually already in local stores and this is just going to be another avenue for them to to show their product but mm -hmm. there's some people who have never shown any of their work before and mm -hmm. we have we have illustrators, we have painters, we have people who make purses and jewelry. So I mean, we have like Chris Brownlee from a KGB. We have Daniel McRoy with Richard Guy. We have Peppa Chan, an unknown um, sketch artist in town. Uh, Brandon Woodworth, just some people. We kind of stole some people from Emily Carr to give them mm -hmm. some, uh, hopefully they can make some cash for their tuition. Right. <laughs> just, you know, we basically just put a shout out and use the avenues that we had and some people were really, really excited, but just it was too scary for them. And other people, they got the gusto up, and they're going to be there this weekend. Fantastic. So the main crafts fair portion is happening from noon to 6 at the Cambrian Hall. That's but right. then from 8.30 to half midnight, what's happening at that point in time? Well, it's an after party. It's going to be <laughs> a blast. That is Fuda Fufu, the after party. So we figured with our entrepreneurial brains, you know, we're renting this space for the day. We might as well do something extra fun at night because one of the things that we were a bit disappointed in in the, the one that we participated in was that we didn't really get an opportunity to socialize with the other 
mm. artists and to network and to get feedback about what they liked and right. didn't like. And so in wanting to provide that atmosphere as well as bring in the music community, which is also just another line of very interesting and talented artists in Vancouver. Definitely. Well, it's, it sounds like it's going to be a great event, and people should definitely drop in. The first half from noon to 6 is free, and then the tickets from, from 8.30 to midnight are $8, I believe. Yeah, they're $8 in advance at the Wallflower, and that's just, um, that's just on the north side of Broadway, on actually on Main Street, across the street from Foundation. It's a new little restaurant that's there. Okay. They've, been, they've offered to sell our tickets there. Wonderful. Um, if you can't get a ticket in advance, you can pay a little bit more at the door. Well, wonderful. Well, best of luck this Saturday, Stephanie, and thank you so much for telling us all about it. Well, thank you, Tracy, for having us. We really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Stephanie Brisbois, one of the founders of Rock Soup Jewelry Company and Fuda Fufu, the new arts craft fair that's happening at the Cambrian Hall that's at 17th and Main from 2 to 6 and from 8.30 to 12.30 this Saturday, April 18th. And... That, my friends out there, is the arts report for this week. I have to send a huge, ooh, I have to send a huge shout out to um, Stephen and Michelle, who just won the ballet tickets for this weekend. I'm going to leave you with some music from Blackberry Wood, who will be performing at the Biltmore Cabaret tomorrow night in celebration of CJFS, CJSF's sixth anniversary of being on air on the FM dial. So that's it from the, the arts report. You can reach me always at arts at citr.ca, and I hope you have a great, sunshiny weekend. Cheers.